First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four. Beginning in verse twelve. We'll read down to the end of the chapter. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Listen to these words. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For, many people don't tie these verses together, for the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let him that suffer, still talking about suffering, according to the will of God, commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd bless the reading of thy word. Now I pray that, Lord, you would enable me by thy spirit to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Father, the subject which our text deals with this morning, Lord, only the divine spirit of God can reveal its truth to us in its entirety. Father, we need in this day and age, when we see the judgment of God beginning at the house of God, and we see the end of all things on the horizon, we need very much to understand what Peter's exhorting us to believe and to see and to understand in the text. Father, grant us divine enlightenment. Help us, Father, to find courage and comfort. Help us, Lord, to find hope in these words of Peter's exhortation. I pray that in all of this you would be honored and glorified in all that's said and done, Father. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Having the past few weeks looked at the sufferings of the righteous under the hand of God, I'd like to expand that theme just a little bit further out to the general sufferings and persecutions of God's, Peter, uh, God's people. And I believe that there's few scriptures that give such detailed and precise ex explanation, not exhortation, but explanation of the divine purpose and blessings which Christians must consider under their sufferings and trials more than this first epistle of Peter. Paul or Peter gives us a blessed definition or explanation of why such suffering is important for the believer and why we as believers should understand that. And yet it has been my experience that many of God's people in isolating passages of Scripture and not examining them in their entire context, that's why I like expository preaching so well, 
often lose, I believe, the fullness of the blessing which our text offers. It's not sinful, it's not wrong, it's not an error to take a passage of Scripture and isolate it and preach a divine truth from that text, but if we look at the entire text in its entirety, we get more of what the writer is speaking about. And that's why I'm such a strong believer in expository preaching. Because if we fail to exposit the whole text, sometimes we miss out on the full blessings of what the entire text is telling us. And such an error leads to a false or, I believe, an incomplete understanding of the text, which will in time offer no real or in-depth comfort which the text is offering. We need to understand the entirety of the context. For example, in our text, most believers know and acknowledge Peter's exhortation and words of comfort in verses 12 to 16. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Most Christians will stop there. Most Christians' understanding of this text stops here. Without taking the latter three verses into consideration, which I believe robs us of the blessings of which Peter is trying to exhort us, to examine and consider. For the time has come, you see, for, in other words, because of what, I, what he just said, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin with, at us, what shall, be, what shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God? So he's still talking about the sufferings and persecutions of the Christians, but he's referring them to the latter times, the end times, the end days, and the judgment of God upon the house of God. They go together. Have you ever considered the sufferings and afflictions of God's people as divine judgment? In the light of the end of all things, Peter said in verse 7 of the same chapter, but the end of all things is at hand. Listen to me closely. Have you ever considered the sufferings and afflictions of God's people as divine judgment in the light of the end of all things and the final judgment of the ungodly and sinners? Isn't that what he said in verse 17? Have you ever tied those things together? Peter does. Peter says we need to understand the sufferings and afflictions of God's people, especially since God's beginning his judgment in the house of God. And if he begins there, what shall be the end of those, the ungodly and the sinners? If the righteous are scarcely saved, he ties them together. And it's very important, according to Peter, that we understand that. And I think this is relevant for the day and age which we live in to now. We, we've been speaking a lot over the past few weeks amongst ourselves in prayer meeting and uh, in fellowship about 
the condition of the world, the condition of God's church today. I believe First Peter chapter 4 is relevant for what's happening now because I believe we can all testify to the, to the fact or the truth that judgment has begun in the house of God. But Peter said, if it begins there, and it is, then surely we are close to the end of all things. And the final judgment of all those who obey not the gospel of God. And yet our afflictions, listen to me, and yet Peter says our afflictions are tied together with that, with those, with that end of times, with the end of all things, with the final judgment of the ungodly and sinners. And therefore he says, he closes out, I'm going to get ahead of myself, we'll go back and start from the very foundation. He says in verse 19 then, wherefore, because of everything I just said, let him that suffer according to the will of God Commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. There's the final exhortation. It all ties together. It all fits together. It all helps us understand not only the end of all things, but it also helps us understand our afflictions and our sufferings. And it has to do with divine judgment. You say, what are you talking about? Hold on today and for the next few weeks because it will take a while to get there because I want to build on the foundation Peter lays first. But I'm telling you, verse 17 is vital for us to understand, especially in this day and age. Our sufferings and afflictions in the end of these times of all things is a divine judgment of God. And I want us to see that. Because that's a good thing, not a bad thing. I, I, I hope to show show you that in what in in this text of scripture. But I want to I want to consider these things first of all after we build upon a, the divine foundation that Peter builds on because I think that's important for us to do that. I want you to look at verse twelve. One main word, and we'll look at a few more. But this morning I want to concentrate on just one word. Very important word. Watch how he can how he begins this exhortation. Beloved. Thinking not strange concerning the fire trap. Beloved. You know, a lot of people don't give that word any or much consideration, but we ought to. Let's not forget this is divinely inspired. This is the Word of God, and every word is important. And sometimes we're too quick to try to find the truth of a text that we don't stop and pause and think about every word of the text. This word Peter used is vitally important for us to understand, especially with the subject he's beginning to deal with, namely sufferings and fiery trials. He starts out, he begins this exhortation with this most blessed word, beloved. This one word would not only quickly attract the attention of those Peter was writing because this word meant a lot back in them days. It should to us. Our dear brother often, I've noticed, prays and uses this word beloved when he prays. Uh, we're betrothed to our beloved. It's a special word. It meant a lot to them. It should mean a lot to us. But it not only quick to attract the attention of those Peter was writing, but it is this which makes the bitter waters of suffering sweet. Because Peter, with this one word, is reminding them who they belong to, and who belongs to them. Your beloved, that's your condition, that's your position in Christ, that's who you are in Christ. You are beloved. And so immediately, this draws out their attentions and, and their uh, devotions and their adorations, reminding them of whom we belong to. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. 
understood and embraced by faith. Dearly beloved, this one word puts every suffering and affliction in its proper perspective. Don't forget, regardless of how much we suffer and we are afflicted and we suffer under fire trials, we are still in Christ, beloved. It sets, as it were, an anchor for the believer's soul in the midst of every fiery trial and suffering. Remember to whom you belong. Remember to whom you belong to. Your beloved in Christ. It's a word never used lightly in Scripture. Never. And it means great endearment. Not like us today that are in such a busy, hectic world in which we don't take time to stop and think, but the Holy Spirit of God moved Peter to put that word there so that they might immediately be attracted to the foundation of what he's fixing to say. Before I say anything about afflictions and sufferings and trials and the judgment of God beginning at the house of God and the end of time and the end of days and final judgment, do not forget to whom you belong. Your beloved in Christ. One word. But beloved, it's an assurance of Christ's great love for us. And that assurance alone can enable us to weather the greatest storm of afflictions and sufferings. So Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, would begin this exhortation by drawing them into Christ. Look at Romans chapter 8. I want to show you something. You've probably seen it before, but if not, I want to show you something in this very familiar passage of Scripture in Romans 8. I like how it begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. The entire chapter is glorious of itself. But I want you to see something here. Look in Romans chapter 8, verse 33. I want to read down to the end of this, and I want you to take a look at what Paul's saying. It says here, you know, I'd like to read the whole thing, you know, if God before us, who be against us? But it says here in verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. That's a settled deal. You listening? That's a settled deal. Justification isn't a feeling, isn't an emotion. It's a legal standing. It's a legal statement. I don't feel justified. I'm legally declared justified before a thrice holy God. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes the intercession for us. Who can condemn us? Christ died. No, he rose again. He intercedes for us. It's done deal. That's what Christ is doing. Yet watch what he says here in verse 35. Listen to how he says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now watch what he describes as things that threaten our assurance of separating us from the love of Christ. These are things that threaten our assurance that we'll be separated from the love of Christ. Listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Past tense. It's that never-changing love. Loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved entails that whole context. Do you notice that he talks about temporary things in verse 35 that threaten our assurance of Christ's love, troubles, tribulations, persecutions? When he talks about being justified, it's eternal, it's set. When he talks about Christ interceding on our behalf, nobody can, uh, nobody can condemn us. That's done, that's a done deal. It's over with. But in verse 35, he says, but there are things that can threaten your assurance of Christ's love and they're temporal. I'm persuaded. You see the difference? You see how Paul says, I'm persuaded? We need as Christians, because of afflictions and troubles and these temporary problems, we need to be assured in our hearts that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Peter says, beloved. You say, you get all that out of one word? I get all that out of one word. Beloved. (laughs) The state that Christ has brought us into the Father is glorious. And that one word meant that much to all the believers Peter was writing to. And it shouldn't mean that much to us. Beloved. Look over in Song of Psalms, chapter 4. Song of Psalms, chapter 4. One word. One word, beloved. Isn't it amazing? It just proves... The sovereign power of God's word when it's engrafted in our soul. One word, one word of God's word. One word is enough to settle anything. One word is enough to calm us in every storm and every affliction. I'm beloved. I'm beloved in Christ. This is what Christ has brought for me. This is what Christ has wrought for me. I am the beloved. Look in Song of Solomon, chapter 4 and verse 16. Watch this. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Not east and west, but north and south. Blow upon my garden that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Now, who do you think the beloved is in this text? The Christ. Who do you think the garden is? The Christ's chosen people. Many there be who believe that this one verse expresses Christ's great love in the affliction of his people. In the affliction of his people. Listen to me. I want you to grasp this so much. I want you to see this of yourself. We speak generally of Christ's love. But have you known Christ's love in the midst of your affliction? Are you following me? I'm getting ahead of myself, but Mary at the sepulcher looking all over for the body of Christ and cannot find her. She's weeping. Weeping. She sees Christ. She doesn't know it's Him. It took one word. One word in the depths of her weeping to calm her soul and fill her with joy when the Lord turned her and said, Mary. And she said, Oh my Lord! One word is all it took. To speak generally of Christ's love, anybody can do that. But can we speak of Christ's love in the midst of our afflictions? And this passage of Scripture expresses it more clearly than any other. 
For when the north and south winds of affliction, and that's, I believe, to be the picture here, when the north and south winds of affliction by God's divine providence and by the Spirit's moving, and that's what these wind blowing amplifies or signifies, what that does in God's people is it gives off or it emits, I like that word emit, such a sweet fragrance of those gracious virtues imparted by God's grace. In other words, what's it mean? When God's people, when the north and south winds of affliction by God's providence and by the Spirit blow upon His people, those God-given graces in our hearts and our lives, they emit a fragrance which is pleasant to Christ because it gets rid of the dross and shows us what Christ has done for us. So afflictions work for us. For they help us to look on things that are not seen. And Peter even says later that we're partakers of Christ's afflictions. Have you ever looked at afflictions like that? That God providentially in love and care uses those things to bring out those graces which He Himself imparted into us like long-suffering and meekness and love and repentance and joy. Beloved, Christ takes the greatest delight in our salvation. I hope and pray you know that. I hope and pray you realize that. He takes the greatest delight in our salvation. And the sweet and pleasant fragrance which comes from the north and south winds of afflictions blowing upon His chosen people, beloved, that is the fruits of His labor. That's the fruits of His labor. When we blossom under the afflictions and persecutions that God divinely ordains and the Spirit brings, that's the labor, that's the fruits of Christ's labor. It's a fragrance which is sweet-smelling to God. That's why Peter says, beloved, you, you say, preacher, you're insane. All that out of one word. All that out of one word. All that out of one word. That's the amazing blessing of God's word. One word. Beloved. Everybody knew that when Peter wrote it. Why don't we look in Song of Solomon's chapter 6? I want you to see this. Song of Solomon's chapter 6 and verse 1. Again, he speaks, Whither is my beloved gone? O thou fairest among women, whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? My beloved has gone down into his garden. To what? To the beds of spices. To what? To feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. Thou art beautiful, O my love, as terrorist, how comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army of banners. Turn away thy eyes from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats, and appear from me. Well, what do you do? He feedeth among the lilies. Why did her beloved come to the garden? That he might feed upon the lilies. Let me tell you something. The afflictions that God brings upon us brings about a sweet and pleasant fragrance in the nostrils of God. Do you know why? Listen to me. It has a lot to, I'm getting ahead of myself. It has a lot to do with partakers of Christ's sufferings. But I want you to I want you to understand something. In Isaiah fifty three there's a verse that has confounded mankind for eternity forever and it will for eternity. It says about Christ's sufferings, it said God shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. When God seen the travail of his own son's soul, he was satisfied. Why? 
because he would bring forth salvation unto many. In like ways, when God afflicts us, we're partakers of that. Not saving souls, but we're partakers in the fact that the afflictions bring out the fragrances of those divine graces God has imparted into our souls. And it's sweet fragrance unto God, unto Christ. He feeds amongst the lilies. So he says, come north wind, come south wind, blow upon my garden. Let those sweet fragrances which come about from afflictions, let those fragrances be sweet unto my nostrils. So Peter says, beloved, think it not strange. Think it not strange. (laughs) Ignorance of Scripture is one of the greatest hindrances to the believer's spiritual growth and well-being. Do you listen to me? Ignorance of Scripture is one of the greatest hindrances to the believer's spiritual growth and well-being and to his finding comfort, hope, and strength under such afflictions. You know why Christians, though they might have lived for a Christian life for years, lack that comfort and that consolation in the midst of their afflictions? Because they don't know Scripture as they ought. And you know why God allows that to happen? It's good for me that I've been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. Because God says that's going to drive you further into the, this book is our hope. You, you understand that? I, I, I know we all agree with that, but this is our hope. This is our light. This is what we need in these days, every day, every generation, in the past and in the future. But this book is vitally important. And so afflictions drive us deeper into this book. It's good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn my statutes. Before I was afflicted, the psalmist said in 119.65, before I was afflicted, I went astray. You see in the fragrance? How often has our heart strayed from God? Like dumb sheep. You know, sheep will just stray off somewhere. If the shepherd don't keep a man and the shepherd dog don't watch him, they'll just keep eating and stray off someplace and not even realize it. The psalmist said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Oh, how do I keep God's word? How do I know about... Oh, when I begin to stray, God afflicts me. And I say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting back in the refuge of God's word. I'm, oh, read it. Pray over it. Meditate on it. Breathe it. Live it. Love it. And now I've kept thy word. The same psalmist in 119 says, verse... 75, I know, I know, here it is, I know, I've heard, I've seen, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right. They're righteous. Your judgments are righteous. And that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. Faithfulness to who? First of all, to himself and his covenant. But faithfulness to me. You get all that from beloved. I get all that from beloved. I get all that from beloved. That's how, that's how much that one word means. That's, I get it all from that one word, beloved. Look at First Peter one seven. First Peter chapter one verse seven. Again, Peter says the trial of your faith here. He says this, we all know this verse, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, 
might be found in the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. What a glorious, what a glorious thought. You know the triangle of gold by fire? Listen to me. It doesn't improve the value of the gold. Follow me. It doesn't prove in, inside is the gold and the dross is on the outside. The fiery trials doesn't improve the value of the gold inside. It simply removes the dross that you might see more clearly the value of the gold. You know that faith God has given to us, God has granted us, God has imparted us, that gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Sometimes the dross of unbelief and doubt covers it. Trials of afflictions doesn't improve the faith. Its author and finisher is Christ. It can't get no perfect. But it removes the dross of unbelief and doubt so that we can see the great value of faith. Have you ever thought how wonderful faith is? Seriously. It enables us to believe in things that man cannot see. Faith is the substance of things not seen, the evidence of things not... That's the magic of faith. That's a wonder of faith. But yet sometimes our doubts and our fears cover it with dross, and so God brings in affliction, not to hurt us, not to harm us. The dry, it said in that psalm, the fire is not to consume you. I only design the dross to remove and the gold to refine. So afflictions come in so that the dross might be removed, not to increase the value of the gold or the faith, but that we might have a clearer sight of how precious it is to believe. By faith. Thomas, you've touched my hands and you've put your finger in my side and you've seen. But blessed are those who believe it without seeing. I'm telling you the preciousness of faith preciousness of faith we have need of afflictions to get rid of the dross so that we might see and acknowledge its beauty more often let me show you something which bears witness to Peter's exhortation as I kind of wind this down a little bit for this morning look around Isaiah 48 this is where Peter's leading the exhortation and I want to kind of keep that goal in forefront in your mind as we go through this passage of Scripture. Look at Isaiah 48, verse 10. Listen to what the Lord says here in, in light of 1 Peter 4:17, which says, Judgment begins at the house of God. Look at Isaiah 48.10. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. I've called thee in the furnace of affliction. What's that got to do with First Peter? Go back to First Peter 4. I, I, want to give, I want to give you time throughout the week to contemplate this on your own so that when we gather together again next week, we're all on one page. I want you to see this. I've chosen you in the furnace of affliction. Watch what Peter says here in verse 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at this house of God. He's still talking about sufferings. 
And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? In other words, consider the light of your sufferings in the light of the eternal sufferings of the godless. Yours are for a purpose, to refine you. The furnace of affliction for them is for perishing. Yours is to refine. Theirs is to perish. Watch this. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, still talking about sufferings, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? You see, he's comparing your sufferings, your afflictions that I've ordained for you in the furnace of affliction is not to consume you, but it is to help you. I've called you in the furnace of affliction, but in the light of the sufferings of the ungodly and sinners, you're scarcely going to be saved, but they're going to perish. So look at your sufferings in the light of that comparison. We sang a psalm. I forgot which one you chose, brother. We sang a psalm, something about the fact that he did not leave me in the grave. To that effect. The believer comes to understand that I'd much rather suffer affliction at the hands of God that draws me closer to Him than suffer the eternal punishment of the, of the, of the ungodly and sinner. And so Peter puts them both together and says, here's the difference. The judgment starting in the house of God, yes, but your judgment isn't going to be eternal damnation. Compare the both, he says. Would you not be rather afflicted by the hand of a loving Father than forever condemned by the wrath of a judging God? Oh, yeah. A lot of people don't consider their sufferings like that in that light, but Peter does. This is why I believe a lot of people, they lose out on the entire blessing of this context because they stop in verse 16. The difference between the punishment of the ungodly and sinners and the righteous is that God chooses us in the furnace of affliction, while the ungodly and sinner perish in it. Big difference. Beloved, think it not strange, verse 12. Think it not strange. Listen to his words now in the light of that. Listen to the, the first two verses, 12 and 13, in the light of this, as I will wind this down. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fire trial, which is, which is to try you. It is going to, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. You see the difference? That ye, uh, as much as partakers of Christ's sufferings, Oh, Lord, I'd rather be partakers of Christ's sufferings than to perish with the wicked. It's amazing how, how the Holy Spirit through Peter puts those two in comparison. To be honest with you, I never really considered that in such depths before this last week. And I thought, it's amazing what Peter's telling us here. Don't let it be a strange thing but let it be a rejoicing. Which fits our way of thinking under fiery trials and sufferings? Do we think it's strange or we rejoice? Well, we need to understand what Peter's trying to explain to us in this text. 
Okay? And the rejoicing is found in believing that by such sufferings, we are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Now, don't misunderstand that. We'll look at that next week. This isn't the sufferings he suffered on Calvary for salvation. It's the physical sufferings, more so, that he went through in life. The persecutions, the suffering. We could never suffer to the degree. We could not partake in those sufferings on Calvary for the souls of men. That's not what Peter's talking about. Peter's talking about, remember how Christ suffered amongst men? How they hated him? Persecuted him? Didn't like him? Partakers. Christ's sufferings. Isn't that what Paul said? And we're going to get into that next week. But Paul said in Philippians, he said, I want a fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. What did Paul mean? Fellowship in the sufferings. So now then look at this, verse 17, when he said judgment must begin at the house of God. If it begins there, if it first begin with us. And beloved, listen to me, it's beginning. We talk about the sad condition of the church, the spiritual state of many Christians. It's beginning. It's beginning. The end of all things is here. It's near. It's going to begin with us. But if it begins with us, going to happen to those who are lost without Christ. And if we're scarcely saved, scarcely saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinners appear? Therefore, or wherefore, if you're suffering, commit your souls unto faithful. I like how the Holy Spirit used Peter and said, as creator. He didn't say God. He says creator. As a faithful, submit your souls. Submit to him. Beautiful, wonderful, glorious explanation of the sufferings of God's people in these end times. May God give us grace to look into it more and learn more from it. But I just wanted to touch this morning basically on that one word. Please, please spend time with that one word and contemplate on it. Read Song of Solomon's. Uh, be a good reading for Sunday. Beloved, one word. You get all that out of one word, get all that out of one word. You, you should too. Beloved, what a foundation. Now Peter says, don't think it's strange. Start from here. Start from your standing in Christ. Now look at it. Oh, okay. Right. Thank you, Lord, for your great love and mercy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so overwhelmed by your greatness, by your infinite wisdom and grace in Christ Jesus. Father, no man could ever, ever have come up with something like this in 1 Peter 4 in these verses. God, that you would use sufferings and afflictions and compare them with the eternal sufferings of the ungodly and sinners so that we might understand that these afflictions are for our good and our benefits. Lord, I pray that, God, you'd give us an understanding of this text. But most of all, this day, this week, I pray that, Lord, we concentrate on the reality that we are in the Beloved. And our Beloved is ours. He is mine. Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand this text. Lord, I pray that you'd enlighten our hearts and our minds in it. Lord, not that we just merely intellectually understand it, but Lord, in the times of our afflictions and sufferings, Lord, may we truly know something of your love in afflictions. Mary was weeping bitterly, brokenhearted like no other. It took one word, one word, in her hearts and her sorrow was healed. Oh, dear God, help us to be reminded 
that we are our beloved's and our beloved is ours. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us so much. We ask now these things in Christ's name. Amen.